Author and pastor A.W. Tozer once said, no man gives anything acceptable to God until he has first given himself in love and sacrifice. The Apostle Paul said it this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Romans 12.1. The author of Hebrews said it this way, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Hebrews 12, 28. Jesus said it this way, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you, John 15, 13 through 16. Do you understand every one of those statements is conditional? Simply the fact that the New Testament writers talk about acceptable worship to God, of course, means there must be worship that is unacceptable to God. Otherwise, they wouldn't say offer acceptable worship to God, right? They would simply say offer worship to God. Of course, Jesus was especially clear about it when he said, you're my friends if you do what I command you. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Why? Why do we bear fruit that abides, Jesus? So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Look, what, what God accepts from us is actually conditional. Again, the author of, of Hebrews, writing to a New Covenant audience, by the way, says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, Hebrews 11.4. If you go back and actually read that story in Genesis 4, you'll see that while God accepted Abel's sacrifice, he did not accept Cain's sacrifice. Okay, we were chosen, created, and appointed by God to bear spiritual fruit, which we talked about last week, which is how we worship him. And yet clearly not every offering, not every sacrifice, not every act of worship is acceptable to God. I know that's not a popular sentiment. It actually flies in the face of what we're taught in the modern church era about worship, where we've been conditioned to believe that anything we offer to God, as long as we're offering something, is acceptable. But that's not what Scripture says. As we'll see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the gospel according to Mark, that's not what Jesus taught. Okay, The, the reality is true worship, that which is acceptable to God is conditional. In fact, if you read what Jesus says to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 as recorded by the Apostle John, first of all, uh, these are prophetic letters for warning the church today about what happens to those who, whose worship is unacceptable to God, which includes his warning to the church at Laodicea. I'm sure you're familiar with it, where he says, because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, Revelation 3.16. Remember, he said that to the church. In fact, the very last verse in that letter, those letters to the churches says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to 
the churches. Revelation 3, 22. And again, if you read those letters, it's clear that these professing believers thought what they were offering to God. They thought it was acceptable, which is why he was warning them and by default us to begin with, because we can believe in Jesus and attend church and give in the offering and sing the songs and volunteer in the ministry on all the while be offering God worship that is actually unacceptable. Listen, while someone else's worship, someone else right next to us who's doing all of the very same things is accepted by God. Why is that? It's because our worship to God is infinitely deeper than simply what we are offering Him. In fact, it is as much or more about how we offer it and why we offer it and what it truly costs us when we offer it as it is about the offering itself, which is what Jesus was trying to teach His disciples as they interacted with and observed these, uh, these religious Jews of His day. Because look, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were all about what they offered to God. In fact, their entire lives revolved around what they offered to God in worship, as we'll see. There was certainly no lack of religious behavior in their lives, and yet their worship was largely unacceptable to Him. And listen, this is the same danger the church is facing today. When we believe that our worship is pleasing and acceptable to God simply because we're offering it, even when our hearts are full of ourselves, full of uh, unforgiveness and pride and greed and bitterness and selfishness and envy and who knows what else, even when it costs us nothing to give, whatever we're offering and worship to Him, and yet we believe that He's pleased with us simply because we're giving something, anything. It's just as He says to the church in Revelation, you say I am rich, I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Revelation three seventeen through 19. He's talking to the church to believers who believe that God is pleased with their worship when in reality he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, what you're offering me is unacceptable. The same warning he gives to his followers in the Gospel of Mark, he gives to the church in Revelation and indeed to the church today. The fact that any worship we offer to Christ that is anything other than true worship, he does not accept. Which means, of course, we need to understand, right, what, what true worship is today just as much as they needed to understand it then. So let's jump back into the story where we left off last time and see what Jesus has to teach us about true worship. We'll begin where we ended last week at Mark chapter 12, starting with verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. To love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So last week in the first half of the chapter, as we saw uh, Jesus interrogated by the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, with each of those groups being uh, totally befuddled by Jesus' answers to their questions. And so all that was left from the Sanhedrin, this ruling council of the Jews, was to the scribes. They were perhaps the most formidable intellectual adversaries of Jesus among the religious Jews as they were the resident experts in the Torah law, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, and the, the interpretation of that law, which, by the way, dates all the way back to Ezra, the first scribe, nearly 500 years earlier. In fact, when it came to authority on the Scripture and how they applied uh, to Jewish religious living, the Pharisees, Herodians, and Sadducees uh, were actually relative amateurs compared to the scribes of the day who were revered to the point that their education and prestige had become legendary in the first century, at times even surpassing that of the high priest, according to the Talmud, uh, the central ancient text of rabbinic Judaism. And so it's as if the Sanhedrin at this point, after several failed attempts to trap Jesus with these theological arguments from the Pharisees and the Herodians, who were actually a political group, and the Sadducees, now, now the Sanhedrin sends in the big guns, right? This is the ace up their sleeve. They send in the dauntingly formidable scribes. And it was commonplace at the time when confronting highly regarded teachers in Judaism or even great philosophers in Greek Hellenistic culture, it was commonplace for the questioner to ask the teacher or philosopher to weigh in on the heaviest matters of law or of life. In other words, uh, to make a definitive statement about the greatest or most impactful issue in the estimation of that teacher or philosopher that was facing humanity at the time. It was, uh, it was sort of the trump card, the ace in the hole for the questioner that could either establish or discredit the one being questioned by revealing their true understanding and grasp of the greatest theological and philosophical moorings of society. And we have ancient records of these types of questions being uh, asked and the answers recorded in both Jewish and Hellenistic literature before and after. Uh, Jesus' time on earth. I read several of them this week, one from 20 years before Jesus, where Rabbi Hillel, a great Jewish scholar and sage who developed, uh, he helped develop the Mishnah and the Talmud. He was answering a similar question from a Gentile about the most important commandment in the Torah law. And then a century later, in AD 135, from Rabbi Akiva, and then again in AD 260, from Rabbi Simlai, where all of these great rabbis were asked the same question, but they were giving different answers. And likewise, in the Hellenistic commentaries of the New Testament, we find these Hellenistic philosophers answering these same types of questions about life and humanity, but never giving quite the same answers. And so this scribe, tease up his big question for Jesus. And you have to understand, this wasn't simply a question about the Ten Commandments, okay? Uh, in the, the rabbinic tradition, uh, there were 613 separate commandments in the Torah law, which they divided into two categories, either heavy 
uh, or light, as in more important commandments that covered these essentials of life and the less important commandments that made less of a demand on the individual. So this was, uh, uh, this was a seminal question from the scribe, the, the defining question for Jesus to answer concerning, as far as he was concerned, the 613 individual commandments in the law. And to be sure, as far as the scribes were concerned, this would make or break Jesus's reputation as a teacher and leader among their people. And so he approaches Jesus and asks the question, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus responds, as he always did by taking them right back to the Holy Scriptures. He quotes from the Shema, the central confessional prayer of all pious Jews taken from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It's the same prayer that was the standard, by the way, by which Josiah, the greatest reformer king in Israel's history, was judged in 2 Kings 23, 25. It's the same prayer that was the first item discussed in the Mishnah, the written record of the Jewish oral traditions known as the Oral Torah. It's the same prayer that was recited every morning and every evening by every observant Jew. Okay, the, this Shema was to the Jews what the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed is to Christians today, which means everyone present was well familiar with what Jesus was referring to when he says the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then he adds Leviticus 19, 18 to the Shema as the second part of his answer, bringing the two into unity, into one commandment. The second is this, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so in this uh, this one statement, Jesus sums up the greatest of all the commandments by combining these two, which the apostles later, later reiterate many times in their own words, long after Jesus is gone. 1 John four nineteen through 21 says, We love because he first loved us. Uh, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God. Cannot. You hate your brother. You cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's just one example. Uh, Romans 13, 8 through 10. Galatians 5, 14. James 2, 8 as well. Uh, in the first century early church, the, a treatise called the Didache. The mid-second century book, Second Clement. The Coptic Gospel of Thomas. They all affirm this teaching that was at the time Jesus said it actually a groundbreaking statement on what true worship looked like. And so you understand, as familiar as these passages were at the time, this was a bombshell statement by Jesus because they'd never been combined this way before in such a seminal statement by any teacher of the law or great philosopher, which is why Mark says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Because despite what they all may have thought they knew about worshiping God up to that point, when asked to describe the greatest commandment, the greatest expression of worship there was, Jesus leaves them all speechless by explaining to them using their own scriptures that true worship is all-consuming. It's not just something you do on Saturdays or for Christians just on Sundays. It's not just something you do when you're feeling like it. It's not just something you do with music. It's not just something that you devote some portion of your life to. 
No, worshiping Christ is supposed to consume everything that we are and all that we do. The fact is, how you live your life every single day reveals what it is that you truly worship. Which begs the question, of course, what occupies the majority of your thoughts? What demands the majority of your attention? What requires the majority of your money? What receives the majority of your affection? What is the focus of the majority of your energy and effort every day? Because Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You know, in the ancient Greek, the word all means all. Not a lot of room for alternate interpretations there. It's actually the Greek adjective halos, which refers to something that is complete. That's why in Matthew's account of the same story, right after giving his answer to the scribe, Jesus says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, Matthew twenty two forty, because all of the law and all of the teachings of the prophets are completed in this one all-encompassing, all-consuming statement about true worship, and it cut them to the core, to the point they stopped asking him any more questions because every single one of them knew their own failure to worship God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their mind and with all their strength. Yet he demands no less from us today than he did from them then. You with me? You understand? Jesus didn't die for you so he could be a part of your life. No, he died for you so he could be all of your life. He's not interested in having a part of you. He wants all of you, and anything less is not true worship. This is such a radical shift in how these religious Jews understood worship because under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament law, again, there were these 613 rules that governed the way that God's people worshipped him. We talk about this in our Next Steps classes, so many of you have heard some version of this. There, there were rules about what to eat and what not to eat in the old law. Rules about what to wear and what not to wear, where to worship, when to worship, how to worship. Rules about how to treat each other, how much to give to God, where to give it, when to give it. There were rules about giving their time, their energy, their abilities, their money, their goods, their devotion, and it was all intended to define their worship by being obedient to God. And listen, it was all based on percentages. Percentages of their lives and possessions and attitudes and talents and intentions. You, you gave a percentage of your time, a percentage of your money, a percentage of your life. Everything was regulated by percentages to offer God acceptable worship. Just read the book of Leviticus. It lays out these rules and regulations for worship in painstaking detail. But then along comes Jesus, and he says, let me just simplify all of this for you. And look, uh, it's a misnomer. It, it's an error to say that when Jesus came, he made it easier to become a follower of God. People say that all the time. That's actually not what Jesus did at all. The fact is, when it came to following God and worshiping him, Jesus raised the bar. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, this is what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said to those of old, in other words, under the old law, the old covenant, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You understand, that isn't easier than the old rule, right? It's much easier to simply say, hey, don't murder people than it is to say you're now not even permitted to be angry with your brother. You'll be liable to the same judgment as if you killed him. That is infinitely more difficult to follow than the old command. Skip down to verse 27. You've heard that it was said, this is Jesus, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, that didn't get easier. Not by a long shot, not based, uh, Jesus is saying the requirement now for staying free from adultery just became infinitely more difficult to follow. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Uh, look, that certainly didn't get easier. Verse 33, again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, meaning under the old covenant. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You see, so far, none of these commands have gotten easier under Jesus' teaching. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Jesus says to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What? And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Seriously, Jesus. And if anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two miles. What are you talking about? Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You're getting the picture, right? It is ludicrous to think that under the new covenant, Jesus has somehow released us from the requirements of true worship. On the contrary, verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now I can get down with that. Except I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Nothing, not one single requirement for how much of your life you devote to worship got easier after Jesus came. Under the old covenant, God required a portion of your day devoted to worship and prayer. Under the new covenant, what does he require? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You understand, this is what Jesus meant when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In other words, no more percentages, no more pieces of your life. I want it all and I want all of you and nothing less will do. And look, this is why they quit asking Jesus questions. Because they knew already they couldn't successfully give the percentages of their lives to God uh, that the worship required under the 613 rules of the Old Covenant. How would they ever 
possibly fulfill this new command to love God and other people with 100% of their hearts and souls and mind and strength? Well, the answer is they couldn't. Because it is impossible. Impossible. Without Christ. They couldn't do it. And neither can we without Jesus. Now, with Jesus, it's a whole different story. Because in Christ, we are filled, consumed by His Spirit through whom all things are possible. And yet, that's the only way to offer acceptable worship to God. You understand, there is no other way, which is what Jesus was making very clear to them. The only the only worship that is acceptable to God is all-consuming worship, which means it's conditional. The condition being that it requires all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, you know, uh, just everything. And of course, there's only one way you will ever be able to satisfy those conditions and therefore offer acceptable worship, true worship, all-consuming worship to God. It's by being all-consumed with Jesus. Because when you allow yourself, listen, not just to believe in Christ, but to be consumed by Him, His Spirit does inside of you what you cannot do for yourself, what, what is otherwise impossible. Pastor and author Sam Storm said, if you come to worship for any reason other than the joy and pleasure and satisfaction that are to be found in God, you dishonor Him. God's greatest delight is your delight in Him. You see, true worship, it's all-consuming, which means it is all-consumed with Christ, as we're going to see in this next part of our story. So let's keep reading, verses 35 through 40. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus continues to address the teaching of the scribes as they're the ones currently sent out again by the the Sanhedrin to confront him. And after answering their question about the greatest commandment, he quotes Psalm 110, 1 through 5. And Matthew actually sheds a bit more light on what was happening here in his account of this same story as he explains that Jesus first asks the scribes, the supposed experts in the scriptures uh, and the law, he asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? To which they reply, the son of David. Matthew twenty two forty two, And so this is where Mark picks the story back up as Jesus responds with, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And so again, Jesus quotes Psalm 110, which was at the time one of the most important uh, most central and most often quoted Messianic Psalms in all of the Old Testament. In other words, every scribe present, again, was well familiar with this Psalm, which depicts the Messiah 
as David's Lord, not his son. The point being the scribes, like the rest of the Jews, were looking for a royal descendant of David, a political Messiah who would free them from Roman oppression and rule, a son of David. And so Jesus, while not denying the messianic line of David, is merely pointing out that David himself refers to the Messiah as Lord, Adonai, in the ancient Hebrew, which was only used as a proper name for God. And so there's no mistake about it. Jesus is highlighting their own lack of understanding of the very scriptures they were supposed to be experts in, especially those that applied to the Messiah, the messianic prophecies, which he uses as a preface to this warning about them, the scribes, to the crowds of people there. So he says, beware of these scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and, and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. In other words, hey, hey, everybody, don't be like these guys who dress themselves up to look important and flaunt their religious arrogance and make their long prayers while they're praying on the weak. It's all pretense. It's all for show because their worship is focused on themselves. But true worship is focused on Christ. True worship is all-consuming worship, which means it is all-consumed with Christ. And this is where the American church in particular needs to be very, very careful because I'm telling you, we are really good at promoting ourselves. We've become experts in marketing and presentation and promotion. We advertise how good we look as a church how great our music is, how much we're doing for the community, how fun our kids' programs are, and how much we will make you feel like you belong when you come to our church. Listen, if we're not careful with all of that, it becomes an awful lot of self-promotion, a lot more about us and a lot less about Christ. But the fact is I have read or seen Dozens of articles over the last few years about what millennials think about the church today. Uh, look, that's fine, but honestly, I'm far more concerned about what Jesus thinks about the church today. Listen, I'm not against uh, the, the attractional model, as they call it in the church world, when it comes to inviting lost people into the church. But I think it's at least worth mentioning that the first century church didn't rely on marketing or presentation or self-promotion to attract thousands of people. They relied on the power of the Holy Spirit, which is what happens when all of your worship is focused on Christ. But the truth is, the, uh, the truth is that's not really optional for the church. In fact, it's one of those conditions that God puts on our worship. Any worship that is not focused on Christ is unacceptable to God. As Jesus makes clear about these scribes in this story whose worship was focused on themselves, he doesn't say they will receive less acceptance by God because of their self-worship. No, he says they will receive the greater condemnation. Okay, uh, look, I don't care how good it is. It doesn't matter how good you preach or teach or sing or play or administrate, or produce, or host, or lead, or serve, or give, if it is focused on you more than it is on Christ, no matter how good it is, God will not accept it. Because the only worship that is acceptable to Him is true worship. And all true worship 
is focused on Christ alone. So uh, who are you trying to impress? Listen, I, this is so important for us to be honest about today in our lives when it comes to our worship. And again, we're not just talking about music or even the Sunday morning gatherings. We're talking about how you live your life every single day, right? Because we all worship something. How you live your life reveals what it is that you're actually worshiping. Remember what the Apostle Paul said? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How you choose to live your life every single day, that is your worship to something, either to Christ or to yourself or to this world. It's why Paul continues with, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Because not everything we offer to God is acceptable. Well, what makes it unacceptable? Paul continues, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In other words, stop worshiping yourself. You're not as great as you think you are. Your life is not just all about you. How you live it every day, that's not all about you. And by the way, his church, that's not all about you either. You're not better than anyone else in here. You don't deserve to be on the stage more than anyone else. You don't deserve to lead a ministry more than anyone else. You don't have a right to be recognized or praised or elevated more than anyone else. You understand, uh, I haven't earned the right to stand up here and preach to you. This is simply the assignment I've been given by God in the local church based on the gifts and the calling He's given me to teach the Word and shepherd the local church. In fact, I served in churches for 16 years before I ever did this, and yet not once was there ever an expectation that I would ever be doing this by me or anyone else as far as I know. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, listen, as far as they were concerned, they earned it. It was their time to shine. And there are people in the church today who feel the very same way. And so Jesus in our story here and Paul in this passage, they're both saying, listen, stop thinking about yourself all the time and what you think you've earned or what you think you deserve or what you think you should be recognized for. Instead, Paul says, think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for us in one body. We have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually Members of one another. Yeah, that guy you don't like very much, you're a member of him and he's a member of you. You're attached to the same body. Get over it. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Romans 12, 1 through 6. Author and pastor David, uh, Paul David Tripp says, Corporate worship is a regular gracious reminder that it's not about you. You've been born into a life that is a celebration of another. Okay, your life exists to worship Jesus Christ and anything less than that is unacceptable to God. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 41 to the end of the chapter. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. 
Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Uh, in the Jewish temple, there were 13 donation boxes where you could deposit your tithes and offerings, which were used to support the priests and the Levites and also to fund the other ministries of the temple. And so Mark says uh, after that, uh, that after teaching, Jesus sits down near these treasury boxes in the temple court, and he watches the people coming by, making their contributions. And there were a lot of wealthy people putting in a lot of money. And right there in the midst of them all comes this poor widow who drops two Jewish leptons into the box. A lepton was a copper coin worth one one hundred and twenty-eighth of a denarius. The denarius was a day's wage for a first century laborer. And so uh, from a material standpoint, this was about as close to nothing as you could get, especially in contrast to what all of these rich people were putting in. And yet Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this poor widow, she put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Now think about that. Jesus didn't say the widow put in more than any one of the others. No, he said she put in more than all of the others put together. Well, how is that possible? It's because they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You see, true worship is sacrificial. God isn't interested in worship that costs you nothing. It wasn't something new, by the way, something that changed when Jesus came to the earth, although he was certainly the greatest example of worship that cost you everything. Still, uh, true worship has always required True sacrifice from the beginning of time. King David understood that long before Jesus ever taught it. For when he was commanded to build an altar by the prophet Gad to give an offering to God on that same altar in 2 Samuel as an act of worship to God, a man named Arana wanted to give the materials and animals needed for the altar and the offering to David for free. But the king said to Arana, no, no, but I, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. 2 Samuel 24, 24. True worship is sacrificial, which means it costs you something personally. So you understand there's no category. Uh, there's no category of worship that is acceptable to God that is derived from our excess or our surplus, or our leftovers, and yet I fear that is exactly where the vast majority of our worship comes from today, out of our excess, out of our surplus, or whatever happens to be left after the other priorities are all met. Let's be honest. How often do we stay home on Sundays and away from the local body because we don't feel like going to church that day? Right? How much is our giving based on what comfortably fits into our budget? To what degree is our service to other people based on whatever we have left to give, whether that's energy or time or money or whatever, after we've taken care of ourselves and our families first? Because this widow, she clearly wasn't thinking of herself first. Jesus said she gave everything she had. 
all she had to live on. Listen, I'm sure she didn't feel like going hungry that day. I'm sure she didn't feel like not having what she needed to live on. She could have very easily stayed home that day and probably no one would have noticed or cared. And yet she obviously understood that true worship costs you something. It's sacrificial, which means we worship even when we don't feel like it or think we have enough to offer. English songwriter and worship leader Graham Kendrick says, worship has been misunderstood as something that arises from a feeling which comes upon you. But it is vital that we understand that it is rooted in a conscious act of the will to serve and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there, there's no way around it. True worship is sacrificial. It always costs you something. And listen, someday it may cost you everything. So what is it that you're offering to God? How does your life worship Him? Is it, is it consuming? Does it touch every area of your life? Or is worshiping God simply a part of your life? You know, whenever it makes sense for you to fit that in. Is it focused on Christ? Or, or is a lot of what you're worshiping actually yourself, if we're being honest, or, or maybe even other interests in this world? And really, what is it costing you? To worship Jesus? Is it costly at all? Or does your worship of Him mostly come out of your excess, out of your surplus or whatever is left over after everything else is taken care of? Look, these are questions that we need to be asking ourselves because the answers are the difference between worship that is acceptable to God and that which He spits out of His mouth. So I'm, I'm just telling you, as long as I'm a part of this church, I'm going to do every single thing that I can to keep us, myself included, from being one of those churches in Revelation who think they're rich, and yet all the while Jesus is saying, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, because there's too much at stake. There's too much at stake for us to offer worship that is unacceptable. To God, He wants it all. He wants it all. He wants all of you. Whatever it takes, listen, whatever it costs you, whatever you have to change in your life to be able to offer true worship to Christ, that's exactly what He wants from you. In fact, that is the only thing that He will accept from you. True worship. Nothing less will do. Let's pray.